Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the privilege of even being in a warm room, Lord, where we can, Lord, gather corporately together for your glory to sing praises to you, Lord, to fellowship together, to be good stewards of that which you have given us, Lord, uh, to worship you, Lord, publicly in a place like this. We thank you for that, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to preach and proclaim your word publicly in this country, as well as to be able to hear your word, to hear what you would have to say, Lord, about yourself to us and about how we ought to be living our lives for your glory and not for ourselves on this earth. I pray that this morning, Lord, we would be sensitive, attentive hearers who, Lord, are not self-deceived, but who are doers of your word, who are obedient and respond in obedience to your holy word. We pray that you would be glorified at this time as we preach and hear your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are back in Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. But I want you to keep your finger there in Titus 2 and verse 15. And just by way of introduction, go with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. For some of us, a very familiar text in Mark chapter 4. Um, the parable of the four soils. Our Lord, throughout His life, lifetime was always teaching, constantly teaching, constantly teaching about Himself, about who He was, who He is, and His identity, and why He had come. And what He was most concerned about was not just that people would listen to Him. There were multitudes, even as we look at chapter 4 and verse 1 of Mark, there was a large crowd that gathered to him and were after him because of the great things that he would proclaim and, of course, the great works that he would perform to the extent that there was a whole crowd, verse 1, by the sea on the land. But our Lord was more and more, um, it was more important to him, not just that these people would be around him and that they would hear what he had to say, but that they would give heed to his message. Because he understood more than any of us that to give heed to the Word of God or not is a matter of life or death, eternally speaking. And so it mattered to him how they responded. And so he told a parable to them in Mark chapter 4 related to this issue of the importance of responding to the Word of God, which was coming from the very Word himself, the one who dwelt among us here. And he said in chapter 4, verse 3 of Mark, listen, literally listen, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, literally listen. Listen. And that listening is listening to the, with the intent of obeying, of following through with what they're listening to. The disciples oftentimes didn't understand what Jesus was saying, so he would have to explain it to them, and he does that in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? 
And here's the explanation. The sower sows the Word, the Word of God. And then here's the first group of people. These are the ones who are beside the road where the Word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the Word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, here's a second group of people. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately they fall away or they stumble. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the Word But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And here's the fourth soil or heart, if you will. And those are the ones, verse 20, on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and notice they accept it or they embrace it. They appropriate it to their lives and bear fruit 30, 60, and a hundredfold. What you have here are four soils, which really represent, if you will, four different kinds of hearts that hear the Word of God. And they all have different responses to the Word. But three of the four reject the Word of God. They reject it for various reasons that Jesus described there. And only the fourth soil, the fourth heart of a group of people, if you will, have a right response to the Word of God. They embrace it. They appropriate it to their lives. And notice, it bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Different degrees of fruitfulness in their lives. And the point is very clear, isn't it? Jesus spoke so much throughout the Gospels and in His ministry about the need to give heed to the Word of God, to appropriate it to to, to our lives. And He was most concerned that His hearers would hear His words and not just hear them, but that they would embrace them and accept them and that it would lead to a life change. First and foremost, putting their trust in Him as the the only one who who had come to die and pay for their sins. Trusting Him as their Lord and Savior. But then from that, for those who would follow Him, that they would become more and more conformed to His image as they appropriated the Word of God to their lives. Our Lord was very, very concerned about this. And so the whole point in this parable is that Jesus wants to impress upon His hearers, these multitudes, the importance of responding in obedience to the Word of God. Because He wanted people to be blessed. He was a loving Savior. A Savior who was compassionate and merciful. And He understood more than anyone else that if the people embraced what He had to say, it would give glory to His Heavenly Father and it would lead to blessing in their own lives. And beloved, that's my heart this morning. My heart as your pastor is that as we've looked at so many things in Titus chapter 2 and we preached some very hard sermons on chapter 2 of Titus, That God's blessing would be upon you is my greatest desire. And that means that you would respond to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God or any exposure to the Word of God in obedience by following through with appropriating the Word of God to your life. Why? For the glory of God and that you might receive blessing. Blessing. 
What father or mother does not want their children to obey for the glory of God and so that their children would receive blessing? How much more our Heavenly Father and how much more our Lord Jesus Christ? That is why He taught this way. And in essence, as you go back to Titus chapter 2 and verse 15, this is essentially what Titus 2.15 is all about. Where here, Titus um, has already been told in, throughout this book in this letter by Paul to instruct the church with some very, very hard things, if you remember. If you look back with me in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Titus, Paul told Titus, But as for you, Titus 2 verse 1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is, those things which are consistent with or flow from sound doctrine or healthy teaching. And if you remember, we've said over and over again that sound doctrine, healthy teaching, leads to sound living when applied. When applied to your life. You can sit through many sermons and messages over the years, over and over, over many decades, and not apply the Word of God to your life, and you will grow very, very little. Because God holds us responsible by His grace and in the power of the Spirit to respond in obedience to the Word of God. And so Titus is instructed in two one to speak those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then in, in chapter 2, verses 2-14, through 14, he uh, proceeds to instruct the various groups in the church about those things. What are those things? The way that older men are to be Christ-like in character and conduct. Older women, in chapter 2, verse 3, are also to be uh, Christ-like women in character and conduct. And we've seen all of those instructions. So that they may encourage the young women to be young women who are expressions of Christ in character and conduct. And Titus is instructed as well, very seriously, in chapter 2, verse 6, to urge the young men by his example, as well as by his words, to be young men who are sensible, Christ-like character and conduct. And bond slaves are also exhorted in chapter 2 and verse 9. These are hard things that we've seen. And it was hard for them to hear these kinds of things, especially um, by the very, because of the very fact that they were in a very corrupt, wicked Cretan culture where everything was pushing against the, this type of character and this type of conduct in the lives of God's people. It was tough for them, and it's tough for us today, right? And what we learn is that even in that time, there was character and behavior appropriate for those who know and follow Jesus Christ. And beloved, it's the same thing today. Even though everything runs counter to um, God's word in this culture, there is appropriate godly conduct and character that is befitting God's people. No matter how hard things are in our society. We must be godly people. And so you would think, after... All of these instructions from Paul to Titus to these people that maybe Paul would let up a little bit. And that maybe he would tell Titus, hey Titus, by the way, don't be so hard on the people. This is a very wicked Cretan culture. These Christians are sinners just like you. There are extenuating circumstances that may dictate or impede them from being, from living Christ-like in character and conduct. Just let up a little bit. But that's the opposite of what he does in chapter 2, verse 15. He could let up, but he doesn't. 
In fact, what he does is he becomes even more pointed to Titus. And what we have here in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, is Paul exhorting and giving Titus a serious call to minister the Word of God in such a way that he would challenge the people of God to appropriate the truth to their lives in the midst of a Cretan wicked culture. And so it is today. He is, we are to preach and to teach and be exposed to the Word in such a way. It's to have such an impression upon our hearts and lives that we are to respond in obedience to the Word of God. Why? Because God, beloved, no matter what age you exist in, He expects your loving obedience out of gratitude for what He has done in your life in Jesus Christ. He expects obedience. If indeed you know Jesus, and if indeed you love Jesus, He expects you to obey Him. To obey Him. And so Titus is to impress upon these people the importance of that. The importance of appropriating the Word of God. So how does he do it? How does he do it? There are some aspects here of obedience that we need to be mindful of if you and I are going to be doers of the Word. And the first one is this. If we are to be doers of the Word, we, we must be motivated by the grace of God. Be motivated by the grace of God if you want to be a doer of the Word. This is where it always starts, doesn't it? We looked at this for a number of weeks, the importance of dwelling and cherishing and treasuring and appropriating the grace of God daily to our lives. That's where it starts. All obedience is fueled and energized by the grace of God. And so we've seen the saving grace of God. We've seen the the saving grace of God that, that delivers us from the penalty of our sin. That we no longer are guilty and under God's condemnation. But we have been forgiven and reconciled to our Maker. We have been forgiven and justified by faith in Jesus Christ. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, God is for you if you are following Christ. God is for you if you are trusting Christ this morning. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God can't love you any more than He's already loved you on the cross of His own Son. He loves you. And to the extent that you and I live daily reminding ourselves of the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ, listen to me, we will live securely, victoriously, and with a sense of mission on this earth. And this should motivate us to obedience, to loving obedience. The grace of God also sanctifies us. Not only does it deliver us from the penalty of our sin, but for those who were slaves of sin before, now we have been delivered uh, by the Spirit of God from the power of our sin. So that we would no longer need to be living for our sin as uh, bowing to the master sin. But now we have a new master who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have the power within us by the Spirit of God, beloved, to, to say no to sin and say yes to Christ and to His practical righteousness in our lives. We can live obediently. Sin no longer reigns over us. But God's grace mightily works through us so that we live for Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 6.11. Even so, this is to believers, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. 
And later on he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Under grace. See, those who understand grace, who understand what grace means and have dwelt much on grace, understand that grace and an understanding of grace doesn't lead us to live uh, uh, with a license to sin. But grace and an understanding of grace leads to obedience and to Christ-likeness in the Christian life. It catapults us and propels us to live victoriously for the Lord. Now we saw also that the grace of God sustains us. The grace of God sustains us that though we live in a broken world with many struggles and many trials, and you and I can say amen to that every single day, right? Every single day we feel the the weight of the brokenness of this society around us and this world in which we live, and we feel the weight of our own sin. How does the grace of God sustain us in the midst of all of that? In that, it causes us to fix our hope on the return of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 say, Set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we focus on Jesus and upon His return. And we remember as we do that, that this world is not our own. And so we do not lose heart. We are pilgrims passing by, waiting for Christ to return. And it is this hope which gives us a sense of purpose and and mission on this earth so that we desire others to come to know Jesus Christ as well and have this hope. So you see how the grace of God, being mindful and living, dwelling upon the grace of God, motivates us for obedience. All three of these these precious truths about God's grace, that it's a saving and sanctifying and sustaining grace, answer some tough questions for us as we live the Christian life. For instance, one, does God love me as a believer? And the answer is, yes, He does. He has saved you. He has put His Son, Jesus, on the cross to pay for your sins. So that by trusting in Him, you no longer need to... Trusting in Him, you are now saved from eternal damnation and separation from God. God loves you. Secondly, it's a sanctifying grace. And that answers the question, can I live victoriously for the glory of Christ? And the answer is, yes, yes. Because the grace of God empowers us to live victoriously in the Christian life as we appropriate the Word of God to our lives. The third question that is answered by the grace of God is, can I live well in the midst of this broken, suffering world amidst my trials? And the answer is a thunderous, yes, you can. Because of the hope of Jesus Christ that He's coming back and He is your hope. Amen? He is your hope. And so our motivation for obedience is the, is, is the amazing grace of God. Genuine, sustainable obedience, beloved, and godliness is cultivated upon the fertile soil of Christ's sin-bearing and substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. And we must dwell deeply upon that beautiful, beautiful work of Jesus on the cross if we're going to live victoriously. As the song says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Oh, we can find great comfort in that, can't we? Great comfort in the fact that God in Jesus Christ, His wrath has been satisfied. He looks upon Jesus and punishes Him, and He pardons us at the same time. If we trust in Him, what comfort that brings. What security that brings as believers. 
You know, some time ago I read a, an amazing article about the adoption of newborn babies. And the article went on to talk about the fact that, if, that for fa- these families who adopt newborn babies into their family, that it is so, so important to continually focus on giving that little baby tender, loving touch and affection. Because that sets them on a, on a trajectory, according to the statistics, that if they're shown uh, these adopted babies who were, who were uh, before rejected, if they're shown tenderness and love and affection, that will have a huge impact upon them as they develop and as they grow up. And I started thinking, you know what? That's the same way it is for believers who have been adopted into God's family, isn't it? The more that we're reminded of the love of God for us, the fact that we've been adopted into God's family and then God loves us and he, has, he shows His tender affection for us and His daily sustaining grace, how much more victoriously and secure will we live as believers? Responding in obedience to Him. Some of you need to respond to this saving grace of God this morning. To His gift of forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. That gift is, is not deserved It cannot be earned or merited by your works. It is offered to you by faith in Jesus Christ. The love that God has shown to you in Jesus Christ by putting him on the cross. And what is faith but a transfer of trust from self, your performance, your merits, your good works, and trusting in Jesus Christ alone and his merits and what he did. Some of you have not accepted and embraced that grace of God. But for others of us, How much daily do we need to reflect upon and appropriate God's grace to our lives? Because it is that confidence that we have been forgiven of our sins, that we've been reconciled to God, that frees us, beloved, to live for God, for His glory, out of love and gratitude for what He has done for us. And so if you want to be a doer of the Word of God, this is where it begins. It begins by you being motivated and moved by the grace of God in your life so that your, your Christian obedience becomes a response of worship to the, to the love and gratitude that God has displayed for you in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins if you're going to be a doer of the Word. That is what should frame our obedience, if you will. Now, secondly, if you're going to be a doer of the Word, you must be mindful of God's authority. You must be mindful of God's authority, which means that God has the final word in your life. His word is the final word in your life. And God's authority is what lies underneath here, beneath what Paul instructs, solemnly instructs Titus to do here in chapter 2 and verse 15. Notice what he says in verse 15. These things, that is the conduct that is consistent with healthy teaching, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I want you to notice something about that verse 15. There are four imperatives, four commands just in verse 15 alone. Speak and exhort and reprove, and in addition, let no one disregard you. All of those are present tense commands. There's urgency here. There's something, there's a serious matter that Paul wants to impress upon Titus regarding the ministry of the Word. 
And Titus is essentially commanded here to not stop speaking, to not stop exhorting, to not stop reproving. He's commanded to continually speak and exhort and reprove. And his responsibility as the instrument of God is to relentlessly uh, administer the word of God in such a way that people are called to respond to it. There's a seriousness here. And I want you to notice also something else about the verse 15 and those exhortations to speak and exhort and reprove. There's a progression of intensity here. Not only is he commanded to speak, to give basic instruction, he used the same word speak in chapter 2 verse 1 where it says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Not only is he to speak or instruct, but then building on that word, he commands him to exhort, that is to come alongside of them with an added sense of of urging them, exhorting them. Why? Because of the seriousness of the subject matter at hand that he has just instructed Titus to give to them. But not only that, building on this, he says, not only speak and exhort, but also reprove, he says. Reprove, which has a sense of rebuking, of, of correcting someone. He used the same word, Um, Or a form of the same word in chapter 1 verse 9 where he said uh, to the elders that they are to be um, men of the book essentially. So that they might be able to refute those who contradict. And in chapter 1 verse 13, for this reason, reprove them, meaning the false teachers, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. So it's got this corrective uh, sense here, rebuking or reproving And all three of these exhortations here highlight the the weightiness of the ministry of the word. And notice in verse 15, he's not to shy away timidly from doing this. He's to minister in this way with all authority, not just with authority. He says with all authority, with all of it. Why? Why? Because this is the very word of God. That's why. And God has all authority, doesn't he? Look back with me in chapter 1 of Titus. In verse 2, he uses this word authority in verse 3. Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, that is before the, before the, the um, um, human history, verse 3, but at the proper time, that is in human history, manifested even his word. In the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. There's that word right there for authority used in 2.15, translated commandment of God, our Savior in verse 3. Paul says to, to Titus, Titus, I was entrusted with the message of the gospel. It's not mine. It is according to the commandment of God, our Savior. It doesn't originate with man. It comes from God. And so I am a man under authority. And listen, as he writes to Titus, Titus needs to recognize that he's a man under authority. He doesn't minister based upon any inherent authority that he has. It has been given to him from God. Not by his great intellect or great oratorical skills. Titus is to minister the word of God knowing that God's full authority is behind the message that he proclaims. It's God's authority that's there. And he is to show this in the way that he ministers. Seeking to live this out in his own life. And the way that he speaks and administers the word of God to people publicly and privately. You know, the ultimate example of one who taught with authority was our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't he? Our Lord Jesus, 
This week I was reading in my devotional time the Gospel of Mark. And it says this concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he taught in Mark one twenty seven that the, that the people, when they heard Jesus speaking, even said, what is this? A new teaching with authority? Spoke with authority, not timidly. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, after preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, it says this concerning the, the multitudes. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus said concerning himself in Matthew 28, verses 9 through 20, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples. Our Lord spoke with authority, didn't he? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, Paul understood that when the pure word, the unadulterated word of God is preached, it comes with power because it comes with God's full authority, right? His full authority. And beloved, we must be mindful if we're going to be doers of the word of God, of God's, the authority of the word of God. Many of us kind of treat the word of God as if in this flippant kind of way. As if the Word of God, when it's preached, or we are exposed to it in our own private devotions, or when we're taught the Word of God, or in Bible studies, that somehow the Word of God comes to us, and and it's offering us suggestions. I can take them or leave them, depending on whether I like what God said in this particular text. right? Or what does the Greek say? Tell me about the Hebrew. Is that really what it says? Because it can't be that hardcore that God is calling me to obey Him in this manner. See, when we open up the Word of God, God is not coming to us with recommendations. Hey, I recommend a child, if you, if, you, if you find it agreeable that you do what I said here, I recommend it. God doesn't come to us that way. He doesn't come to us in His Word with opinions to agree or disagree with. He doesn't come to us with one perspective amongst many When we are exposed to the Word of God privately or publicly, you and I need to remember that God's Word places a verdict upon our lives that has to do with life or death. We are are accountable for responding to the truth of the Word of God. We are ordered to obey and to glorify God in our obedience. Many of us have received letters over the years, haven't we, from the U.S. court system. You love those letters when they're requiring you to to serve jury duty, right? How many of you love those letters? Let me ask you, when you receive such a letter, such a summons from the the U.S. court system, what do you do when you receive the summons? Just tear up the letter and throw it in the trash? I hope you don't, right? Great, some of you do. I hope you don't ignore it. I certainly don't ignore it. This is like the U.S. court system ordering me to do this. I don't just throw the letter away or put it aside or or write them a letter complaining about why I as a citizen have to go do this. No, you respond or else you suffer consequences, right? We understand authority in our country. See, authority has, has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? Because people abuse it. Because people lord it over others, use their authority in the wrong ways not to help people. 
But when it comes to God's authority, you and I need to realize that our Heavenly Father has fullness of authority in His Word, and He wants us to obey for His glory, and listen to me, for our good, so that we would be blessed, so that we would tr- have true happiness in this life, and, all, and even more so in eternity. God wants His blessing upon you. And so He's going to hold us accountable. For those of you ultimately who have not given your life to Christ, He's going to hold you accountable in the ultimate courtroom for whether you've embraced His Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. And that's a scary place to be. And for those of us who are believers, it matters how we live our lives on this earth. We are called to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. But see, oftentimes we treat the Word of God as if it's just a book of recommendations, of guidelines for our lives. It doesn't drive us to worship Him, doesn't drive us to obey Him unreservedly. And so if you're going to be a doer of the Word, you must be mindful of God's grace. You must be mindful of of God's authority. And thirdly, listen to this, you must be mindful of human rebellion. Beware of human rebellion. You know, I think after that second point and hearing about God's authority, you would think, well, that should be it, right? We should hear that the Word of God has, holds all authority over our lives. It's final, and we should just obey it. But unfortunately, if you've lived your Christian life long enough, you know your susceptibility to human depravity so that you push against the Word of God daily, don't you? And I do too. And so we must be mindful if we're going to be doers of the Word of God, of our human rebellion, our tendency to disregard the Word of God, to dismiss it. And that's exactly why Paul exhorts Titus, look at chapter 2, verse 15 again, to let no one disregard you, Titus. These things, this lifestyle that is consistent with gospel transformed uh, with the gospel, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That word disregard there is made up of two words, to think and around, thus to think around someone. It has the sense of of despising, of looking down upon, of overlooking someone, of downplaying what they have to say, of disregarding them. And it's a present tense command. Paul is telling Titus, Titus, stop letting people disregard you, dismiss you. And you know this, it's not ultimately Titus that Paul is ultimately concerned about. Titus is a servant and an instrument of of God and a, a representative of Paul. He's just a man. But Paul knows that if they dismiss Titus, then they disregard the word of God. And worse, if they disregard the word of God, who are they ultimately dismissing? God himself. God himself. That's the problem. That's the problem. Let no one disregard you, Titus. Because if this disregards you, they're ultimately disregarding God in so long as you're preaching the word to them. And this is the bottom line with disobedience, isn't it? When we fail to respond in obedience to the word, beloved, we are essentially saying something about our view of God and his authority over our lives as our creator and as our heavenly father. We're saying, God, I know better than you do. I know what's best for my life. I don't have to obey you. I don't need you, God. 
None of us would ever say that explicitly to the Lord, but in action, that is what we are doing when we disobey and disregard and dismiss God's clearly uh, uh, communicated word. We're disregarding Him. Paul says, Titus, don't let them do that. This goes for the false teachers who are teaching contrary to what you are teaching on the island of Crete. But this also goes for these Christians who are to be Christ-like in character and conduct and investing their lives into one another by example. Don't let them disregard the word of God. And they were doing so. Maybe with the excuse that the culture was too godless. Titus, we can't possibly live this way in the midst of this Cretan culture. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's impossible to live Christ-like in the midst of this wicked culture, perhaps. Or maybe they were fearful because of the opposition that seemed to be too great. Too much. Or maybe they were just flat-out apathetic. Cold. Callous to the truth. Whatever the case was, Paul says to Titus, don't let them disregard you. Don't let them dismiss the importance of obeying the word of God. And listen to me, times have not changed, brethren. In our pride and in our rebellion, we too many times disregard the word of God, don't we? We disregard the word of God. And human rebellion and pride comes in many different forms. We might show our human rebellion and pushing against the word of God and obeying the word of God and responding to God's truth by elevating our feelings above obedience. I don't feel like obeying. I don't feel like forgiving that person. I don't feel like discipling other people. I don't have time to be discipled. I don't feel like getting involved in the church. I don't feel like serving and meeting other people's needs. I don't feel like loving this husband of mine. I don't feel like loving this wife of mine. You don't understand how bad I got it. I don't feel like like not harboring bitterness anymore and unforgiveness. I don't feel like giving that up. I don't feel like reconciling with my spouse. I don't feel like loving my kids. I don't feel like loving my brothers or sisters in Christ. Listen, we oftentimes live that way. As if we don't have to obey the word of God because we don't feel like it. Can I remind you this morning that it is your duty to obey the word of God regardless of how you feel? And at the end of the day, yes, we want our hearts in it. But in case your feelings and your emotions and your affections are not there, you still have the responsibility to your heavenly father. If you claim to know and love Jesus Christ, to respond in obedience to his truth. And you know what's so beautiful about this? That so oftentimes my experience has been that when I don't feel like obeying, I still obey out of duty. Later on, the affections and the emotions come, don't they? Because we've honored the Lord and God is faithful that way. So we're called to obey him regardless of how we feel. Regardless of how we feel. And that's one way that we disregard and dismiss the word of God. We show rebellion and disregard for God's word also by our own hypocrisy and self-righteousness. By our own hypocrisy and self-righteousness. How often times do we compare ourselves as believers to others? And therefore, we don't wholeheartedly obey the Lord because we're just, we're just trying to be as good as the other person. We don't have to excel at being obedient. Or how oftentimes do we, do we expect something from others that we ourselves are not willing to do? 
that we are not willing to live out. I've told you this many, many times. Our Lord Jesus was hardcore against the hypocritical, self-righteous people of his day, wasn't he? Utterly, utterly hard because of their hypocrisy, because of their self-righteousness. He said this in Mark in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2. He said to the multitudes regarding the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That is the, the place of authority. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say all things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. What was he calling out? Their hypocrisy. That these religious leaders expected things from other people around them. And yet they themselves were full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness from within. They were self-righteous hypocrites. And they were individuals who tied heavy burdens upon other people. Expectations that they weren't even willing to meet themselves. Jesus even talks about this later on in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. He talks about how, how they love to go through the externals, even tithing mint and dill and all these other things. They love to do it. And he says, you ought to be doing those things and obeying the commandments of God, but do not neglect the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Don't forget in the process of obeying God's commandments, he said to these religious leaders, the fact that you ought to be doing this because you love God and out of love for your fellow brothers. Brethren, mankind, love. They had grown cold in their love. They had become hypocrites and self-righteous people because they did not love. And I submit to you, beloved, this, that oftentimes we are so focused on making sure that we follow all of the external commands, that everybody looks in a certain way externally, and we ought to be concerned about behavior in so long as behavior more often than not reflects a heart attitude. But let us not forget about why we are calling people to obey the Word of God. It is because of love for God and love for them. Amen? Out of love. And these religious leaders didn't do it for that reason. Shame on us. Shame on us. That oftentimes we have this picky and choosy mentality towards what we obey and what we don't obey. And we become self-righteous and hypocritical. Some of you love picking on this social media age that we live in, which I appreciate in many ways with all that that's brought to our lives. But in other ways, there's some dangers, isn't there? Some of you love to, to blast off on social media. To talk about homosexuality and the, and the depravity of man in that. And you love to speak against people who kill babies and commit abortions. And you know what? I appreciate your zeal. And I appreciate your love in those areas. The people to be, to be called on the carpet for those things. But meanwhile, you neglect your family. You don't love your husband. You don't love your wife. You're passive about shepherding your, those in your home. But you have a lot of time to be on social media. You yell at your kids. You snap at your kids. You neglect your kids. You don't point them to Jesus Christ. You know what social media becomes for you? An escape instead of, instead of an opportunity for you to still love your family in the midst of you speaking the word of God to the world around you. It just becomes an escape. That's it. And you become self-righteous and hypocritical in the process. 
Appearing to be so zealous for those things and at the same time not loving your own family. Not loving the Lord. What about you husbands? Many of you who really take a lot of pride in being a hard worker, you put the, the, you bring the, 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 put the food on the table. I want to affirm you first and foremost, you should be a hard worker, you should provide for your family, you should do those things. But let me ask you this, are you also spiritually shepherding your family? Do you pray with your wife? Do you ask her how she's doing? Do you teach her and shepherd her according to the word of God? Do you worship with her? What about your kids? It's not just enough to bring home the bacon. Do you have a relationship with your kids? Do you spend time with them? Do you spiritually shepherd them? Do you point them to Jesus Christ? Do you call them lovingly out on their sin? How about that? Those are the weightier things, if you will. Our hypocrisy and inconsistency also shows itself in our commitment, our lack of commitment to the church. As we speak about Titus chapter 2, you know, we are called as believers to love the church fervently, according to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. To love the church, the, the, the brethren fervently, that is stretchingly. And what, do, what, what does that require? That requires time and, and sacrifice. And many of you are very hypocritical. And you say, I don't have time to be involved in the church. I don't have time to participate in other people's lives. And yet if we were to survey your life, you are giving your time and your sacrifice to many secondary matters. That some of them may be important, but they're not the primary thing. You have misplaced priorities with regards to your lack of commitment in the church. You disregard the word of God. And you put up all kinds of smoke screens that you're so, so busy and you're so active on social media. On social media, you are the most outspoken relational person, right? You know what, it, what social media becomes for, for some people? It just becomes an escape. Because they feel uncomfortable around life-on-life relationships where you are literally sitting in front of somebody else, looking them in the eye and getting to know them and them getting to know you very personably and very relationally. But we're very good at doing this on social media because we don't want to be transparent. We don't want to do the hard, dirty work of being in other people's lives and vice versa. So we disregard the Word of God with regard to life-on-life discipleship. Real, blood, sweat, and tears kind of life-on-life relationships. And we run and we escape to social media where we are very opinionated and we say every, uh, give all our opinions about every issue in life. In that we disregard the Word of God. Some of us say, with regards to the church, no one, no one loves me here. I don't fit in. I'm a misfit. Can I just encourage you and exhort you? That too is a form of pride. A lack of humility. Because you know what? Pride comes in many forms. Pride doesn't just say, I am better than you are. Pride also says, I am more important than you are. And so therefore you come in with the attitude, hey, I put in my service. People need to reach out to me. People need to, need to show me that they love me. Well, tell that to Jesus. Tell that to Jesus, who was the king of the universe. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what did Jesus do? He stooped down and washed the disciples' feet. He didn't say, oh, look at me. Hey, 
I am the great master of the universe. You guys wash my feet. Jesus says, let me, by way of example, show you guys how you ought to be loving one another and serving one another, putting others before yourself. I'm going to stoop down and wash your feet. Give me the apron. That is the attitude, beloved, of those who apply the word of God. We're not saying others are not doing for me. Other people are not serving me. Why are people not loving me? Instead, it's the attitude and obedience to the word of God of Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You ought to be loving yourself. See, there are so many other areas where we dismiss and disregard the word of God. We also uh, um, show our rebellion and disregard for God's word by excusing our disobedience. Again, I'm very busy. A lot's going on. We put all kinds of smoke screens. Listen, I've had a rough background and a rough upbringing. That's why I don't shepherd my family because I never learned how to do that. Listen, there are examples in the church, a la Titus chapter 2, who are willing to step out and help you with that. You cannot use that as a smoke screen to not shepherd your family. Some of you, Give the excuses for your disobedience. Hey, as we go through the series on Titus chapter 2, I'm too old to change. I'm already set in my ways, young man. I don't need to live that out anymore. I put in my service. I put in my dues. Listen to me. You disregard the word of God because God doesn't give you an excuse because you're an older man. In fact, he puts more responsibility on you as an older man and older women to train the next generation. You have no excuse. You disregard the word of God when you do not disciple other people. Or I'm too young. I'm too young to think about these serious things about the word of God. I just want to have fun. I just want to have fun. And you disregard as a young person the fact that the next, the word of God, the next day is not promised to you. Do you understand? You could be gone tonight. You don't have the luxury of, of banking on the fact that you will be around for years and years and years. You disregard the word of God by not redeeming the days, the, the time because the days are evil. Not living out your, your, your youth years for the glory of God. See, we use all types of excuses as if God, mean, unrealistic, arbitrary God that he is, would call you to obey in impossible situations or life circumstances. Listen to me, beloved, and listen to me well. God is a good God who cares for us, and he longs for us to obey so that we would be blessed. So that we would be blessed. And the genuine believer responds out of love for God in obedience to his commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. We disregard the Word of God by being a critic of the Word of God rather than a, an applier or a doer of the Word of God. By being critics. Pride comes in many forms, doesn't it? Some of you love to critique the Word of God. You love in your private study to, to ask yourself, is that really what that passage is saying? You love to critique messages. You love to critique sermons. You love to critique Bible studies to see if they measure up to, according to your standards. You are more of a, of a preaching lab instructor or evaluator, uh, evaluating people's performances than asking yourself, how does this message apply to my life in content? You're more prone to do that. 
Even now, maybe you're asking, you're justifying yourself saying, well, aren't we, aren't we to make sure that the person uh, who is up there speaking the truth? Sure, sure. But this does not mean having a pattern of being a critic, an evaluator, a complainer, instead of humbly responding to the word of God in obedience. We are not to be sitting critiquing performances. We are all servants of Christ. And those who preach and those who who hear the word of God have the same degree of responsibility in so long as we are called to apply what we hear. Apply what we hear. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived, says James 1. Humbly receiving the truth. We disregard the word of God by coddling sin. Coddling sin in our lives. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the result of coddling secret sin in our lives and unbelief in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive. And when we are not walking in obedience and in fellowship with others in the church and we are unwilling to confess our secret sin to God and to others, beloved, listen to me, your heart will grow hardened, callous, and and deceived. And you won't Obey the word of God. You won't even have a desire for the word. You won't even long for the word. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. It says get rid of the junk in your life, meaning the sin in your life, so that you will long like a newborn baby for the pure milk of the word. James chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Put aside sin so that you will receive the truth of the word of God implanted. Finally, we can disregard God's word by being lazy about application. By just being passive and lazy about application. Again, listen, many of us read a lot of Bible material. We listen to a lot of messages and a lot of sermons and expose ourselves to the greatest preachers in the world. And I would say, excel still more. Do it all the more, beloved, but take it to the next step. Apply the Word of God to your life. Some of you know a lot. You have a lot of head knowledge, but you're utterly spiritually immature and walking in godlessness. Because you don't apply the Word of God to your life. You don't apply what you hear to your life. So are you dismissing knowledge and knowing? Absolutely not. Knowledge is always, always, always where it begins, but that is not the end goal, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So as you continue to grow in your knowledge, may it lead you to to reflect upon the Word of God so that you would be like Christ as you apply the truth of the Word of God to your life. Listen, God expects obedience to his word. You can't say, hey, get off my back, pastor. I know God already. I love God. You can't tell me that I don't. Who are you to judge? Well, listen, the word of God judges you. First John chapter two, verse three. By this, we know that we have come to know him. That is, we have a relationship with him. If we keep his commandments... The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. 
And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Listen to me. You say you know Jesus. You love Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. Are you obeying him? Are you obeying him? If you are not, you're a liar. You're a liar and the truth of God is not in you. You need to be confronted with the truth of the word of God. On the other hand, you say, Pastor, I get it. I get it. But how do I work on being a doer of the word? How do I work on that? Well, listen, I firmly believe that part of our problem is that we are so distracted We are so constantly living in this fast-paced society where everything is immediate results and everything is hasty and everything is flippant. We hardly even have time to eat, right? Hardly even have time to eat. Sometimes I leave my house with a a sandwich in my hand or some kind of a a coffee or whatever. I don't even make enough time to eat sometimes. We're so busy, so distracted by, and, and the social media doesn't make it any easier for us. With all of its blessings, that's one not very good thing. And so that leads to not being very purposeful and, and sitting in silence before the Lord in solitude. It's a long, a lost art, isn't it? To sit, sit at the feet of Jesus in silence, hearing from the Lord by means of his word. You know what the missing link there for us is, beloved? In application, it's meditation. Meditation. The bridge from knowing to doing is meditation. Meditation. I'm not talking about worldly meditation where the aim is to to clear your mind, empty your mind of everything around you. By the way, that never works. It's enough depravity in us. We can't clear our minds for crying out loud. That's worldly meditation. Biblical meditation is completely the opposite. The aim is to fill your mind with God's truth, right? Right? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The idea there is let it make its home in your heart. Don't let it just be visiting. Be saturated with the word of Christ. Psalm 110 verse, or 119 verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And notice the parallel thought. Your word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Parallel thoughts. With all my heart I have sought you. Um, Your word I have hid in my heart. Why? So that I would walk in obedience. So that I would not wander from your commandments. That I would not sin against you. What is the bridge between doing, uh, between um, uh, knowing and doing? It is meditation. Seeking the face of God intently and deeply. Let me give you a definition of meditation. Meditation is the conscious choice and relentless practice of thinking deeply about God's word to understand it and apply it. It's the conscious choice and relentless practice of thinking deeply about God's word in order to understand it and apply it. And you know what goes hand in hand with meditation? Memorization. Memorizing scripture. Because what do you do when you memorize scripture? That index card all day long, right? You're forced to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and to dwell upon it and to ponder it, and to ask questions about that particular verse, and to find ways of remembering that scripture. Meditation and memorization go hand in hand, don't they? Liken meditation to a nice hot cup of tea, right? 
You dip that tea bag repeatedly in hot water so that the water eventually becomes what you want to drink. Well, think about meditation. In meditation, you are the hot water. And the tea bag is God's word. And reading and studying the word is like dipping that tea bag in and out repeatedly so that the more that you do that, the more your mind is saturated with God's word and you become like Jesus by the grace of God. That's meditation. God instructed Joshua to meditate upon his word. If he was going to take over leadership with the nation of Israel, Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, Joshua, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Toward what goal? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Note, if he is going to do all that is written in the law, he needs to meditate on the word of God day and night if he's going to be a doer of the word. Think deeply on the word of God, day and night, with what result? For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. This is not success or prosperity a la Joe Osteen, all right? Or a la Oprah Winfrey. The other day I heard, heard her say something like, what kind of a God would not want you to be happy? By what she meant, rich and wealthy. It's not what scriptures are talking about with regards to success and prosperity. It's talking about eternal blessings, the hope that we have when Jesus Christ arrives. But it's also talking about the present blessings, such as peace, joy, satisfaction to know that you are glorifying God with your life, being a blessing to others around you when you obey, having a clear conscience that's at peace, knowing that you are obeying your heavenly Father from within. A right perspective on your, uh, an outlook on your trials and your sufferings because you're responding with, in trust to the word of God. All of those are ways that God prospers us and allows us to have success in this life, to endure well under our trials in this present world as we anticipate Jesus' return. Listen, beloved, the Lord wants to bless us, doesn't he? He wants to bless us. But that's going to require that we respond to his word in loving obedience. That we appropriate his truth to our lives. And our obedience should be ultimately for his glory and out of a heart of gratitude and love for him because of his grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, your word says, How blessed, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Lord, help us to be people who are doers of your word, because you want to bless us, Lord. You want us to experience, Lord, not the, the passing pleasures of our sin that lead to death ultimately, but you want us to experience victory in the Christian life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those things, Lord. And that only happens when we appropriate your truth to our lives. Father, help us to glorify you by being those who respond to your truth, knowing that, Lord, even when we don't feel like it, Lord, you grant the delight later on, Father, when we are faithful to following your word. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.